And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. It seems like just yesterday that I was in the back of a van with Bernie Sanders uh, in Chicago recording the first episode of The Axe Files, and here we are today, the 200th episode of The Axe Files, and I just want to thank all of you who have been faithful listeners uh, of these conversations. Today's is of particular interest because Ed Gillespie, the Republican who lost the Virginia governor's race uh, in November, a particularly heated and controversial uh, governor's race, uh, sat down for his first conversation since that campaign to talk about some of the controversial decisions that he made in the campaign, some of the advertisements that got a great deal uh, of attention, and perhaps contributed to the wave of voters who helped elect the Democrat Ralph Northam uh, to the state house. But that race was merely the coda on a long and interesting career in public life. Uh, the the reason that Ed sits on the board of the Institute of Politics, and we had a chance to talk about the entire journey uh, in this conversation. Ed Gillespie, welcome. Thank you. Great to be with you. A lot, lot to talk about, and obviously you've had an interesting year, and we want to talk about that. But um, before we get there, I want to talk about the journey to that yeah. year and start with the fact you, you and we, I have something in common in that we both are the sons of immigrants. Yeah. Uh, tell, me about your, tell me about your folks. My father came to this country as a boy from Ireland. He was eight years old, and his grandfather had found work in America, and my grandfather was a janitor. He worked at a big bank building in Philadelphia, and he'd go in after the bank closed, 6 o'clock at night. He'd start an eight-hour shift, and he'd start on the ground floor emptying the wastebaskets and mopping the floors, and over the course of an eight-hour shift, he'd work his way to the top story, and the last thing he would do would be to polish the big wooden conference table in the boardroom and get home around 2.30, 2.45 in the morning. My uh, parents didn't go to college, neither one, uh, two of the smartest and hardest working people I've ever known. They worked on their feet all day in a grocery store. The J&C Market and J&C were Jack and Connie, and uh, that, that was my mom and dad. It was a mom-and-pop grocery store, and in my family, when you turned 12, you got a birthday cake and a present and a four-hour shift at the J&C Market. <laughs> we all worked in that grocery store. Your dad was a veteran as well, right? He was, decorated, uh, World War II inf- infantry leader. Both my parents are laid to rest in a veteran's cemetery, and uh, my father, uh, two Purple Hearts, a Bronze Star and a Silver Star uh, in World War II. Uh, 29th Infantry, and, um, you know, I always say Jack Gillespie was born in Donegal, Ireland, but he died a great American, and he instilled that in us, and uh, I I believe to this day that, uh, you know, people who come here legally and and, uh, become Americans are patriotic Americans, and first-generation Americans, very patriotic, and, uh, you know, we've seen the blessings of liberty in this country and my family. You... uh, uh, your your folks were were Democrats. Yeah, uh, your mom ran for the school board. Is that right? Yeah, the first race I ever worked on <laughs> was when I was nine years old, and uh, my mother was the first woman ever elected to the school board in our town. And so she was she you know shattered a glass ceiling, was a, a trailblazer, and then she became went president of the school board and right? became president of the school board. And uh, she served, I think, about twelve years uh, on the school board. 
And did she talk about why she wanted? I mean, do you remember her talking about why she wanted to do it? Well, you know, we were. I'm one of six children, and she had six children in the in the public schools, and I think she was concerned about the schools. Uh, you know, we weren't a political family. Um, uh, my father was, uh, you know, uh, as being a grocer and standing behind that grocery store counter. People would come in and out of the store all day long, and they would ask him what he thought about different races and that yeah, kind of thing. Better than being a pollster, it is. And yeah. he had a he had a pretty good political. He sense. also ran a ta- He had a tavern as well, right? I always say, you know, I, he lived every Irishman's dream. Eventually, he sold the store and he bought a bar, uh-huh. and uh, it was just you get a, you get some opinions there. You as get well. some opinions there. It was a yeah. shot in a beer kind of place. There was no tap. You know, it was all just long neck. Uh, uh-huh. I always say you could get a mixed drink if all the ingredients were in the name of the drink. You know, <laughs> seven and seven. We could make a vodka and orange juice. We could make that, but um, it, it was a you know a very uh, you know working class uh, family, and we cared about and were interested in in politics. They were Democrats, and I was I you know was born a Democrat. If you're Irish and Catholic, born in New Jersey in 1961, the year John F. Kennedy is sworn yeah. in, they all but stamp it on your birth certificate. Over time, my father became picture an of JFK up in the saloon. JFK in a house uh, mm-hmm. at our home, a picture of uh, of uh, JFK and uh, uh, Pope John, uh, Pope John, mm-hmm. uh, the 23rd of peace. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so that was my that was the, the culture that I grew up in. My father became an independent, registered independent and uh, uh, couldn't bring himself to be a Republican. But he grew disenchanted with the Democratic Party under Jimmy Carter. And he found Reagan very appealing, like a lot of ethnic uh, Democrats in the Midwest and the Northeast, you know, in the in 1980 and, and 84. You went off to uh, you went to Washington to go to college at Catholic University. I did, and it wasn't my intention. I was originally wanted to go to school in New England, but I got rejected and ended up uh, in Washington D.C. at Catholic University, which is where I was meant to be. And I worked my way through school. I took out student loans and I and I parked cars at the Senate Senate parking lot. Yeah, uh, and and uh, that's how I ended up getting into politics. I actually wanted to go into journalism and was going to study, and I was studying communications and journalism, and I was the sports editor at the right, school paper. Right, you wrote right about sports. I <laughs> yeah. saw that. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, th- so when you so did the parking of cars at the Senate expose you to people who who looked after you, gave you opportunities? How, how did that all happen? It did. One of the, one of the guys I was uh, parking cars with, um, and, and the neat thing about parking cars there, it's all it's students from all the different colleges from around the District of Columbia. And so you got to meet uh, you know, kids from Georgetown and American and Howard and Catholic and uh, Trinity, and, and that was very interesting. And one of them had an internship in one of the offices uh, on the House side and said there's another internship available. It's a good office. Uh, you should intern there. So I applied for the internship, and that led to a job, and that led to another job and another job. And you went to work for a, a, a congressman from Florida. Who was a Democrat. Um, Andy Ireland. Yes. And I thought that perfect. was perfect, yes, perfect for you. <laughs> so, so. But he became a Republican. In the realignment, you know, in, in 1984, he ran as a Republican and changed parties. And that's when I, you know, became a Republican. And then you, I mean, you became, um, you you took that communications interest of yours and you applied it uh, to politics. You went to work for Dick Armey, who became quite an influential figure in the shift in the Republican yeah. Party. 
He was a freshman member of Congress who was elected in 1984. From Texas. A big landslide year, obviously, for President Reagan and, and a lot of coattails. And six Republican uh, freshman members of Congress were elected in Texas that year, and they called them the Texas Six Pack. <laughs> and I wanted to be a press secretary, and uh, because of my interest in journalism, and and uh, I could write pretty well. And uh, but the, there wasn't a, an opening in the office in Andy Ireland's office, and so uh, someone that I knew uh, told me about this uh, this opening in in Dick Armey's office, and I, you know, applied there and got the job and. Went to work for him in his first month in office. Um, he was a, an economics professor yeah. from the University of North Texas, conservative, free market conservative, and you know, really driven by ideas. And uh, we clicked, and he had a very good office, and you know, he kind of became a force of nature in the House. Even became head of the minority. House Republican Conference. He ultimately became head of the House Republican Conference, but really kind of what made his uh, name was he passed – the base closure bill, uh, the base closing and realignment act, and that's still in effect today. That is the process by which we determine what bases, uh, military bases, to keep open or close or consolidate. Which is as sensitive a very a uh, process as there can be, because communities uh, rely on those bases for economic. Uh, reasons and so yeah. they fight hard to keep them, whether it makes sense or not. Well, and that's he was trying to remove that decision making process from the political thicket and have it be a, a less political process. And that's what the base closing and realignment commission does. It's still very political and it has a huge impact, obviously, and people try to affect it, but it's not as affected as if it were just a decision made by members of Congress earmarking and, and that kind of thing. I remember during the course of that debate, Bob Dole, who obviously has a great sense of humor, told a story about a, a base closure when he was a freshman House member, and he got a call from the senator uh, from Kansas who said uh, they're closing a, a base. And, uh, or Dole called the senator because he got noticed that they were closing the base in his district, and he said, do you want to announce this with me? And the senator said to him, no, I only announce base openings. <laughs> it's a very, you know, it has an impact, yeah, obviously. Right. And so... The uh, to move it out of the out of the political uh, spectrum and into a, a more rational decision making process has had a long term beneficial effect net net to the to the country. But it's you know it's caused pain in certain communities. Obviously, you uh, you you met your wife uh, in during this uh, period. And she too was working on the hill. She was and uh, working for a Texas member, and and we had a softball team for the Texas offices, and uh, we met playing softball in a congressional softball league and. I went out to a, a practice and she was pitching, and uh, someone handed me a bat and said, "Why don't you, uh, you know, take some some licks?" And so I went up to home plate and I looked out on the mound and there she was, and that was it. And I, I, I truly felt like a, a lightning bolt. How, how'd you do at the plate there? I took her deep, <laughs> but we've been married thirty years now. <laughs> she, um, she, I know she worked for uh, Joe Barton. She who's, did, and. What was your? You must have known him well. Were you? Uh, you must have been shocked by uh, the, uh, his demise. Yeah, I was you know surprised by it. Um, Political demise, I should yeah, say. He's still and, with us. You know, I I have and and you know he came in. He was part of that Texas six pack and and Kathy was his first you know employee. Essentially, she was at Texas A and M, and she basically ran his campaign out of her her college apartment and uh, was his first paid employee. It was, it was for a special election to replace Phil Graham uh, mm -hmm. when he had run when for the Senate, Senate for tower yeah. Senate seat. And uh, so it was an interesting race. And, uh, but you know, I, I always feel that uh, 
One of the biggest risks in Washington, and in particular in the House, is people staying too long. And uh, I like Joe, and I think he served the people of the 6th District well, but I think, to, to my mind, this is a, you know, one of the things that happens when someone stays too long. And a friend of mine, uh, I mentioned Robert Hurt, who's a member of Congress from Virginia, and uh, he called me after serving for, I think, three terms, maybe four, uh, you know, a couple years ago, and said, I'm, I'm not going to run for re-election. And I said, good for you. I said, you know, I think that's great. You served. You served honorably. You're going home. That's what the founders had in mind. And, you know, you served the people of the 5th District very well. Your, your boys are still young enough for you. You know, the time you spend with them is important, and I'm happy for you. And he's, you know, doing a public affairs uh, program at Liberty University yeah. now, and he loves mm-hmm. it. And I, I think that if more of the members of the House in particular, but it's true of the Senate as well, were to come and then leave after a certain period on their own terms, you know, just too many of these, uh, these folks get carried out on their shields because they stay too long. Uh, Barton was uh, caught up in this really cultural sea change that's starting. I mean, it was disclosed that he had sent some uh, photos that were yeah. inappropriate. Uh, and um, what do you make of all of, of this? And how? Where does where is it going to lead? Because, uh, you know, these charges go w- right up to the president of the United States. Well, I think in fairness to Joe, uh, you know, and, and these are, you know, distinctions that uh, it's kind of unbelievable to me that these are the distinctions, you know, we're making in this conversation. But, uh, you know, in his case, these were adult women, largely his age, uh, that he was uh, engaged in extramarital affairs with, but they were consensual. And, you know, that's a distinction, I think, between someone who uh, is engaged in a relationship with someone in a subordinate position or, or harassing, you know, sexually harassing employees or staff or harassing even those who are not employees or staff, and it's not consensual. And, you know, these are the the conversations, it is clear to me, seems right now, we're going to be having for for a while. And maybe some of it we should, I mean, because yeah. uh, th- it isn't just limited to politics, but also business, Hollywood. Oh, we've, yeah. seen it, we've seen examples in all these places yeah. where people, uh, men in positions of, of power uh, abuse it in ways that are uh, untoward. Yes. Uh, so... Um, but it just it, it's, it's someone told me I won't repeat the number, but someone suggested to me the numbers of members of Congress who may fall into this category and and are at risk is quite high, significant. And um, I, you know, uh, there's a lot that that uh, you know is going on right now. It is a significant cultural moment. I have two young daughters. Uh, I know one of them. Yes. Great young woman. Very bright and, uh, you know, uh, entering the workforce. And I have to admit that I've been stunned by the the number of of people uh, who have engaged in that. Uh, I've been very fortunate, I think, and I guess apparently I've been fortunate in in the circumstances in which I've worked in that, and I've and I've pressed myself. I suspect everyone has. You know, have we? Have I seen this uh, in my in, in workforces and in, in offices where I've worked? 
And I really can't think of instances of this kind of uh, harassment. And I've prided myself in, in, in my own businesses and working with women uh, in promoting them and, and treating them with respect. And I've been amazed at uh, how rampant uh, this is. And uh, I do think that uh, it's a moment that is going to result in change that is much for the better for my daughters and for future generations of women. Well, well I, I can't, we can't leave this without me asking you a couple of obvious questions. Uh, one is uh, about the, the president himself, and there are all these the, uh, numbers of women who have stepped forward and, and accused him of uh, abuse, of, har- of harassment uh, at a minimum. Uh, Nikki Haley, the ambassador of the United Nations, said uh, uh, this past weekend these women should be taken seriously. They should be heard. Uh, what, what's your feeling about that, and what message does it send? And we can go back. Uh, look, we can have an honest discussion about yeah. the there are Democratic presidents who right. uh, who've been uh, guilty of, of of things that uh, under today's uh, under today's in today's world would not have been tolerated. Yeah. Um, but what's your view of it? I, I believe these women, relative to the president, will be heard. And the question is, well, in what venue and to what end? I don't know the answers to that, but I, I suspect we're going to hear more uh, from them as we're going to hear more from women who have been affected in the workplace and and more in Hollywood and more on Capitol Hill and, and in other venues. Now, you, you see in a situation with, uh, with Senator uh, Franken, uh, you see with... Uh, uh, who resigned. Who resigned. Representative Franks. Uh, there are others... Uh, Joe Barton said he's not going to seek re-election. Uh, there are others who have, whose names have been put forward, uh, uh, Representative Conyers, obviously. And each of them are in different situations to a certain extent and how, you know, how, they, how you get, to a certain extent, justice or uh, you know, fairness in that, in that process, I, I think, is going to be different in, in these different venues I, you know to your point about well the women what if affecting these the president are, yeah. you know being heard i think they're going to be heard where does that if those know? charges are 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 proven or you know and uh presumably the same kinds of things apply here as elsewhere they may have talked to people contemporaneously right. about it and no. so on what sh- what what then what happens that's my i don't know you know, it's, should, I mean, it's, should the president is, also the, resign as the is, others have resigned? If it turns out, are those if those things are true, should the president should the president resign? I, I, again, you know, he has said that they're not true, right. uh, and you know, this it's kind is kind of a weird this, thing, though. If you deny it, you can go on. If you accept, if you acknowledge it, you resign. It's kind of a perverse incentive, you know. Uh, again, perverse, I think I guess, it's not the right is, word here, but yeah, but this is, uh, I, I think, because look, we're in uncharted waters here to a certain extent, and uh, I, I think these things are going to play themselves out in a way that it's hard to it's hard to be predictive uh, right now. You are a former chair of the RNC. Yes. Uh, the RNC is now supporting, as we sit here today, the race will be tomorrow, uh, Roy Moore in Alabama. Uh, do you think the RNC should be supporting uh, Moore, and what will it mean if he gets elected? 
if I were an Alabaman, I would not uh, be able to bring myself to vote for uh, Roy Moore. I, I couldn't vote for Doug Jones, uh, but I wouldn't be able to bring myself to vote for him. Now, the Cory Gardner uh, has at the senatorial chairman of the, the chairman the of the senatorial committee, Senator from Colorado, uh, NRSC. Has has uh, they're not putting, uh, yes right yeah, yeah they're Sorry. not putting uh, putting uh, money into the race. I think that's you know that's the right decision. And what if he gets elected? Should he be seated again? Uncharted waters. I mean, this is is it bad for the know, Republican Party either way? Uh, you know, I think given uh, what. Senator Franken has done, and 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 Conyers, and and we'll see what others. There are some other Democrats, you know, obviously who, you know, mm-hmm. are in the mix. Um, you know, politically, I think that it's obviously going to be a challenge, and I, I think the you know the members of the the Senate Republican Conference realize that they've made that clear. I was struck by uh, by Senator Shelby and mm-hmm. uh, his comments yesterday. The senior senator from Alabama said he could not. He didn't vote he voted, for. He wrote in someone voted else. for Roy Moore, um, but I'm trying to think through the politics of this. So everybody's now saying, "Well, let the people of Alabama decide." The people of Alabama decide, and then he comes to the Senate, and then the Senate expels him with the President of the United States supporting him. I don't know. Uh, like I say, I mean, and I've I've seen the statements, various statements from from leaders in the Senate. Uh, you know, they said there will be an immediate investigation uh an ethics investigation and uh so that would run its course i assume um again un- uncharted you know territory here but just putting your poli- your your strategist hat on and you're one of the best um doesn't it create an enormous uh, problem with the base of the uh, the sort of trump base of the republican party if more comes and then is expelled and presumably with a lot of Democratic votes to expel him, as well as some Republicans. Well, this look there. There are these tensions and and these cross currents. Clearly, and and it's true in both parties, as you know. But in, this is an example where the uh, there will be a segment of the electorate that will say, you know, we're not we're, we're electing someone. There was an interesting piece. I wish I could remember and give proper credit that I saw not too long ago. Uh, that kind of talked about the difference between. One of the differences between the elites and and kind of rank and file voters, whether they be in the Democratic or the liberal uh, base of either party, and it said the mentality is look we're we're not electing someone uh, the elites may see it as well we're you know we have to be more virtuous and and role models and that kind of thing. A lot of the electorate is saying we're just sending somebody there to do a job and to to vote for. Tax cuts and conservative judges, and you know, well, other, in fact, some other of those issues. voters pr- uh, clearly resent being told that. And they there's and that and that's a factor uh, as well. There is a sense that uh, you know people from outside of our uh, you know state or commonwealth. In my case, you know, uh, we don't want folks telling us what we you know who we can and cannot vote for. We'll we'll make that decision ourselves. And there's a there's a backlash that that results from that. But uh, I'm, not, people- I'm not minimizing the. The challenge, I'm agreeing with you that this, but these are some of the factors that contribute to it. Before we leave this, is it better for the Republican Party um, to take the hit and uh, and have a Democrat uh, hold that seat for however long that Democrat does, uh, or to deal with having Roy Moore with all of his 
And it's not just about his sexual harassment, but about, you know, his comments on slavery and a whole and, range of yeah, other things. In my view, uh, the the just politically, I, I made clear my own yeah. view in terms of yeah. as a person, I could not vote for him. Mm-hmm. From a political perspective, I don't think the you know the long term pain would be worth the short term gain of the of the seat uh, politically. But again, I don't you know my view as a Virginian is not going to have much of an impact uh, you know in, in that regard. Uh, let's uh, l- let's take a short break and we'll be right back with Ed Gillespie. I want to return to your story. So Dick Army, as we talked about, became one of the leaders of the sort of what was known as it may actually aggravate him to hear it said this way, but the Gingrich Revolution, right? Uh, in 19, in nineteen ninety four, and and a linchpin of that campaign in ninety four, when the Republicans took over the House, was something called the Contract with America. Right. Uh, you were deeply involved in drafting that. Tell me about that. You know, it was uh, I th- it was a very exciting time, and uh, Gingrich deserves a lot of credit, as does Army. The two of them, when they came together, really formed a, uh, you know, an alliance that was pretty powerful, uh, and their ability to work together and the staffs to work together, uh, you know, was something that we hadn't really seen. Our Army got into leadership uh, and became conference chairman of the House Republican Conference, and, and Newt was the whip. And... They both believe very strongly that opposing President Clinton was not enough, that you had to come forward with a competing alternative agenda for governance. And they worked very hard in that regard to put forward 10 bills that they would, if, if Republicans took control of the House, which remember at that point had not been the case for 40 years, right. for four decades. No, it was a tectonic shifting of the place. It was. and But they felt that that was the necessary ingredient that had been missing was to not just run against uh President Clinton or run with a Republican presidential candidate, but to come forward and say, this is what we'll do if we're given the, the ability to, to govern and the responsibility of governing. And, and uh, so they went about bringing together the whole House Republican Conference and candidates for Congress all across the, the country to craft an agenda that they could run on in a unified way and say, we'll do this. And, and that was the genesis for the contract with America. And I, I was involved in the, in the drafting of it. I, I co-authored the book, uh, contract with America, and I, I gave the names to the bills uh, in the contract uh, as part of kind of the marketing campaign. And it was very effective. This was before social media, and so the, the media kind of hook on it was uh, an ad in uh, a TV Guide, <laughs> and where you could tear it out. It was like a cardboard uh, uh, cardstock insert that you could tear out, and the, the point was, this is the contract, keep it, and keep you know, tabs on us and see if we'll do these 10 things uh-huh. and, and hold us accountable. And uh, it was a very successful uh, effort. Yeah, it's unusual for a legislative party to be able to craft. And every, ever, ever since, there's always been this, well, why can't this, why can't, when Republicans are out or when Democrats, why, why can't there be a coherent, I mean, it's, usually it takes a president to, uh, to, to shape an agenda. That was, a, that was an unusual it was unusual, and I do think we were at a point because we'd been out for forty years. Uh, you know, the the the, we, and we'd had three years of of Republican uh, presidencies because we had the you know President Reagan elected, reelected, and then President Bush for a third term, yes. essentially. And so 
The truth is, and it's, it's the natural cycle, but by the end of that third Republican presidency, we'd gotten a little flat. And that was, and, and President Clinton was able to take advantage of that, obviously, to get elected. And so then this was a way to say, here's some new ideas, some new blood, some things that, you know, that we haven't talked about in a while. Let me just ask you one thing about the, the whole, that whole period of time. Uh, Gingrich was a very sharp-edged character, yep. and he went hard after uh, some of the leadership that had been there. Uh, Bob Michael, who was the Republican leader there, who he ultimately uh, replaced and so on. And part of it was a much more um, aggressive stance toward uh, Democrats. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I for one, and I, I look, I know Newt, uh, and, uh, you know, we've had delightful conversations, yeah. not always agreeing. Uh, but, um, but it seems like there was a point of departure there where our politics in Washington got very, very sort of hard-edged. And uh, so rather than thinking of opponents across the aisle as, as, uh, as colleagues who, with whom you have disagreements, it became much more sort of take no prisoners and so on. Is that a fair assessment? Uh, in some ways, yes. I would say you could go back a little further, though. I, to me, in terms of my experience, I, I actually think the the uh, rejection of John Tower as Secretary of Defense and, and in the eighties in the eighties was was kind of an initial harbinger of some of that, and and a little bit of a of a break from the kind of traditional. Um, you know, that to me was kind of a watershed moment. And some of the Supreme Court fights. And then some of the court fights, uh, obviously. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so uh, uh, Bork, you know, mm -hmm. being, being a significant one in that regard, too. So, you know, you, it's kind of a question, well, who started it? Um, I do think that Gingrich took those tactics and aggressively applied them as well. Um, and he used media. You know, he was... One, he, he kind of saw C-SPAN as an opportunity when the House floor opened up to C-SPAN as yeah. an opportunity to get a message For these one-minute messages. The one-minutes and, and the special orders. Um, it takes vision to see C-SPAN as a weapon, yeah, I must say. Yeah, it does. But uh, there's no doubt there was a sharpening of the differences, and uh, he wanted to highlight the differences. Do you look back and uh, say that that wasn't all for the good? Uh, you know, I'll tell you, not because when when we took control of the House, there was still, you know, good working relationships across the aisle. And you still had, you know, bipartisan support. It, it you know, things have, the polarization has accelerated throughout the years. And I would say that was a moment of acceleration. But again, I, to my mind, I would go back to mm -hmm. the confirmations uh, of Tower and Bork and some other things that Thomas. kind of, kind of, and, and Thomas although kind of, that that one takes on a new, uh, it takes uh, on a new dimension in today's but, but, context. But that's but. why I think Bork is maybe a more, yeah, uh, mm -hmm. a more apt uh, example. And you know, it it it, it did accelerate it, um, but whether or not it was a reflection of, you know, or a cause, you know, it may have been a reflection of what was going on in the electorate. Republicans were very frustrated having been out of power for 40 years and felt that, you know, the things that we'd been doing weren't resulting in any change and that we had to do things differently. And, uh, you know, Newt applied that uh, with his approach to sharpen the differences. But to his credit, I would say 
in, in that regard, too. And I'm, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with sharpening differences. But he did put forward these 10 bills and say it's about the policy. These are our policies that we will, uh, you know, that we will enact. And, and the contract with America and the 94 midterm was not just about President Clinton. It was about these policies. You, uh, you, you know, you, you've, gone, you've held many different positions uh, in politics and out of politics. In the, in the, uh, in the 90s and uh, 2000s, you established yourself as a lobbying presence uh, in town. And um, first with Haley Barber. Yeah. Uh, former DNC uh, RNC chair, <laughs> sorry, and the uh, former uh, and I guess he became governor of Mississippi after after, after yeah. all of that, and then with Jack Quinn, who had been mm-hmm. counsel to Vice President Gore, um, and you guys represented some of the sort of blue chip corporations in America, including banks, mm-hmm. tobacco companies, mm-hmm. and so on. Say uh, say a, a word about lobbyists and if you, if you want to say a kind word about them because they're they're, <laughs> yeah. they're not they're, there's a real jaundice in this country about the impact that lobbyists have had yeah well there's there's no doubt about it and look i, I to my view as a as a conservative republican you know i wish that the federal government did not have the effect on the economy and the and the direct impact on the economy that it does in many many different ways but it does clearly and people have a right to petition their government and uh, so trade associations, uh, uh, charitable foundations and others, uh, corporate America hire people to represent their interests before uh, the government and the Congress. And it's become a big industry. There's no two ways about it. And, you know, one of the things that, that Jack and I did, obviously, in forming Queen Gillespie was to, to form a bipartisan firm to try to find ways to help serve clients on both sides of the aisle. At the time, it was somewhat unique, not entirely unique, but somewhat unique. And, you know, we took on folks who had big problems and tough challenges and and tried to apply uh, the things that we had learned in government and in campaigns uh, about how to uh, promote ideas and, and, you know, deliver message and, and, you know, make it clear that this was a good thing, uh, not just for this company, but you know why it would be good for the broader public, whether it's job creation or or uh, innovation. One of one of the complaints is that people come in and out of government. You see a lot of in, an influx of a lot of uh, lobbyists now. You you were in and out of government in the in the two thousands, um, and uh, you, for example, and tell me if this is wrong. Yeah, uh, but were, you were influential in sort of thinking through. Uh, appointments to the FCC when uh, Bush became president. You'd represented telecommunications companies. Is that is that right? Uh, no, I there was I, I can't recall. I, I didn't really make personnel. There there are folks who do that. I never uh, lobbied on personnel uh, because I didn't feel comfortable doing that. I lobbied on issues. I know a lot of the people who mm-hmm. you know who ended up in a lot of those positions, but I don't recall. Advocating for advocating them. for somebody, but to get the reason I ask this is that this is sort of the swamp that yeah, uh, right. President uh, Trump yes. uh, talked about this sort of relation, and now it seems like um, that it is it has come back sort of with a vengeance. Lots of uh, uh, of, of lobbyists there, and the question is, I guess you, what you're saying is that you think the government has too much power, and therefore 
lobbyists who try and influence it have a great deal of power too? I don't know that they have a great deal of power. Um, uh, uh, my point is, you know, I would I would prefer an economy where Washington weren't so central to the economic, you know, direction of the of the country, but it is, and you know, people have a right, literally a constitutional right, to uh, you know make their case to uh, the the government. By the way, people also do that through grassroots and through. You know, town hall meetings and going to their member of Congress's. But if you but were, if you were, uh, if you were uh, Jack Gillespie, yeah, tavern owner, yeah, you would not have the influence that Philip Morris has when they hire Ed Gillespie. He wouldn't, but he was a member of NFIB, mm-hmm. and and you know he paid dues to NFIB and was proud of his membership as as uh, you know as a small business owner in the NFIB, and and they've got you know influence. it's a national lobby for small business, right? National Federation of Independent Businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, it's, uh, uh, we tried to do work on behalf of clients that we, you know, were proud of and on issues that we felt were, you know, were good, but we obviously it was our business, no two ways about it. And, uh, when I left, uh, what became QGA to go to work for president Bush in the white house, uh, you know, I had to sever all ties and, and, uh, I, I did not, you know, return to lobbying up, uh, I, not because I think it's bad, but I just it wasn't. Uh, I didn't enjoy it as much as I enjoy some other things that I do. And uh, but we were very effective on behalf of our clients, and we did a good job for them. You mentioned your service with President George W. Bush. In fact, you and I had parallel positions in the White House. Yeah. I, I, I've mentioned before. I was always grateful that you, uh, in the uh, transition, were uh, very open and invited me over and. Uh, as was uh, President Bush uh, toward President uh, Obama. George W. Bush, when I think of him, uh, you know, I think of a guy who is pro-trade, was a real advocate for immigration reform. Uh, He believed in America's leadership role in the world, uh, you know, and and, uh, I'm leaving out aside the wars, which were decisions I'm sure he took. Uh, thinking they were part of that leadership uh, in the world. Um, And we could debate that for a long time, whether that was the right or wrong uh, decision. But it's striking how far the Republican Party under President Trump has has moved from those uh, positions. And, you know, you you ran for governor. in this past year, in 2014, you ran against Senator Warner. You almost beat him. Yeah. It was one. It was the most stunning race of 2014. Nobody thought you had a chance, including a lot of Republican donors who didn't give you yeah. the money that you probably needed to to win. You lost by a point or a little more than a point. Eight tenths of a percentage point. Eight Not that anyone's counting. Yes, <laughs> you probably know the exact number. But um, 2017, you're running for governor. And you almost lose a primary for governor. You are as established a figure in Virginia Republican politics as there is. Your former chairman of the Virginia Party, the uh, consensus choice, or at least uh, thought to be for for governor. And part of it was that you are a a George W. Bush Republican, an establishment. Republican, how stunning was that to find yourself in that position? Well, a couple of things. One, uh, you know, 
in 14, uh, I was outspent, you know, by over $10 million because Republicans didn't think I had any chance to win. In, in 17, in the governor's race, I was outspent by $10 million because Democrats thought I could. And, you know, I was supposed to lose the Senate race by nine points, and, and it was a neck-and-neck neck race. I was supposed to be in a neck-and-neck neck race in the governor's contest in, in this last November and lost by nine points. You know, I mean, it's just so unpredictable. And it was unpredictable in terms of the primary, uh, the, the uh, you know, the closeness of it. I had made a conscious decision for it to be a closer uh, contest than I didn't think it was going to be that close. Uh, but I did not, you know, kind of go at my uh, – and I had two opponents, and that contributed to it as well because the third opponent – uh, took a you know his votes would have been my votes. But your principal challenge and the one you barely beat was Corey Stewart, Corey Stewart. who had been a, a, a so so outspoken that he's no. actually expelled from the Trump campaign, which is hard, <laughs> really hard to do. And and I chose to not you know kind of attack him or to or to you know do any negative against him, and also frankly not to spend that much money to ho- to to shepherd my my resources and to husband my my campaign dollars for the general not because i was just taking it for granted you know we had data that showed that we were in better shape than we were but again that's one of the things the data is very unreliable these days and it's hard to model the electorate in an off off year primary i think that we should explain that uh, polling is only as good as the models and if your model is off in terms of your assumptions as to Who's going to show up? Right, uh, your polling can be off too, and that was true in some of the state polling in 2016. Exactly. exactly, and a lot more of the people who had come out to vote in the Republican primary in Virginia for President Trump in the primary came out to vote again the next year in the gubernatorial contest, which we were not anticipating them coming back, and they did, and and that resulted in a in a much closer race because because uh, my opponent was, you know. The running on Trump, I was running on my own set of issues that I thought were more relevant, frankly, to Virginia in terms of the policies that we needed. Mostly on economics. Mostly on economics. We're going to take another break, and we'll be right back with Ed Gillespie. Just to back up for a second, uh, you never endorsed Donald Trump for president. When he became the nominee, uh, I did, and, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm a former RNC chairman, and, and uh, I said I would support our nominee, I and, and I did. And in fact, I introduced Vice President Pence, then Governor Pence, at a couple of rallies in, in Virginia. But you weren't uh, seen by the Trump base in Virginia as a as a Trump person. For that, that's fair to say. I, I I mean, think, it seems to me that yeah. this primary ed in uh, in Virginia really spoke to. The sort of ongoing, I don't know if you call it a civil war, but within the Republican Party. And they're really very different. Uh, I mean, there may be some commonality on issues of regulation and tax cuts and so on. But on these issues that really propel Trump, trade, immigration, uh, you know, uh, the sort of the social divide, um, it, it seems pretty profound. And your primary race uh, spoke to that. Well, I th- you know, uh, the the fact is, you know, I, I would have every day in the course of my campaign, you know, three Republicans would say to me, you've got to stand up to President Trump. 
And every day, three Republicans would say, you've got to stand up for President Trump. And my mentality was, I'm not running to be for or against President Trump. I'm running to be for the you know, people of Virginia, to be our next governor. And I really wanted to keep the focus on that. Almost impossible, but though, it, isn't it? Well, to your point, if you're not uh, you know, standing up for President Trump, uh, for his supporters— you know, it's they see you as not for him. And it's not that I was not for him. It's just that, uh, and I'm, I'm not against him. I, I wanted to be for Virginia, and I wanted to keep the focus That's on a, Virginia. That's such a hard tightrope to it's walk. It's a tough tightrope to walk, and I, it may not be walkable, to be honest with you. Yeah. Do you, uh, he was in the state a lot because he has his golf club there. He, he st- tends to stay at his property. So he was in the state a lot. He never campaigned for you. You, uh, I, uh, I, I presume that you never asked him to campaign for you. Is that right? That's correct. And uh, you know, it never. Uh, it was a, it was a point of discussion. Uh, the president did not ask to campaign. He did not ask to come in. And uh, I, I know, you know, everybody thought about it. Uh, remember, the president didn't carry Virginia, right? Um, and highly unpopular in Northern Virginia, and Northern Virginia, where the the you know a third of the population, and uh, so you know we we had uh, concluded that we didn't want to nationalize the race. You know, I wanted the race to be about Virginia, and uh, that's by the way the norm in our Virginia governor's contest. When you have you know the first. And New Jersey has a race, too, but there wasn't much of a race there. And so all mm-hmm. the chips were on the table in Virginia. All the focus was on Virginia. And, uh, you know, as as you know, the 10 of the last gubernatorial elections in the year following the, the presidential election have gone to the party out of yeah. power, out of the White House. Right. And the exception was the President Obama was the, uh, was the exception. And, and, Terry um, and, and it was largely an outlier, again, because of an external factor, which was the government shutdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, which took place for the first, you know, 16 days of October, which which I think had a big impact in terms of that outcome, or it may have mm-hmm. gone consistent with the norm. So I knew it was going to be, you know, a, a challenge you, the when day you after start, election When day. you started to run, you, you your assumption was probably that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. Well, that was the conventional wisdom. Now mm-hmm. I was going to run regardless, uh, but I, I, you know, looking at all the – you know the the polling and everything like we just said you know turned out to be wrong that was my you know that was my guess was that she was likely to win based on what you know what I was seeing um so i knew on uh you know the day after the election the presidential election that that the road just became a lot uh harder given the historic pattern in in virginia well and the fact that as you said earlier that trump was a divisive figure even within the republican party so there were Republicans who uh, probably were very vehemently embracing of him and Republicans who were uh, recoiling from him. And I was able to bring them all together. You know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the exit surveys, uh, you know, the fact is I got, I think, 95% of self-identified Republicans, which is, you know, what you get when you've got a unified party. Nobody gets 100% even of their own mm-hmm. party. I think Lieutenant, I think Lieutenant Governor now Governor like Northam was right around the same with Democrats, and we also had record high turnout. Yeah, uh, that was the most votes. You did very well with independents when you ran for the Senate in two thousand and fourteen. Yeah. Not so uh, much in two thousand and seventeen. I, I uh, carried them in seventeen, but fifty forty eight narrow mm-hmm. uh, margin. Uh, mm-hmm. The 
but but we got you know we turned out our vote uh and so i was able to unify the party and get well, by not by not constantly talking about and i i just had made a determination i wanted to talk about my policies about virginia and not get sucked into the national debate as best as i could yeah, avoid but, it it's but, not but, easy but look you um you know that i have to ask you about how you unified the party because yeah. the fact is that you were the object of suspicion among the trump base that was uh, and there was a concern that they weren't going to come out in the fall you embarked on a series of ads that are very controversial uh one uh, about Ralph Northam your opponent who yeah. you I know you you've been friendly with him over the years you told me in advance of the race I think it'll be a very gentlemanly race but these weren't very gentlemanly uh ads but I mean, Harold Washington my old uh, client in Chicago, you say politics ain't beanbag. Well, yeah. that, this, this is certainly an example of that. But uh, you ran ads uh, around the issue after uh, Charlottesville of the Confederate statues. And uh, uh, and and the implication of the ad was local communities should decide. You yourself had said that you thought these statues might, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, should should perhaps come down, but you, you think it should be up to local communities. No, let me, let's, let's talk about the statues for a second. It's, a, it's an important issue, and, and there's so many misperceptions about it. So uh, the reason it became an issue a- after Charlottesville is because uh, my opponent, Governor-elect Northam, came out and said all the statues should come down. And he and I both agreed that it should be a local decision, uh, that the locality should decide, but my view was that they should not all come down, uh, that we should add historical context to them. By the way, that's, a, that's, a, that's an opinion that's shared by the current governor, uh, Terry McAuliffe, and former governor, Doug Wilder. So rather than take them all down, add historical context. Don't, I wouldn't, if I were a city council or county board of supervisors, spend the money to take them down because it's, it's, a, it's an expensive proposition. And on top of that... There's a lot of misperception people don't understand because they saw the coverage from Charlottesville and, and, and people outside Virginia believe that the statues are all of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or Jefferson Davis. They're not. The statues that people really care most about uh, all around Virginia in, in uh, city squares and county courthouses are to an anonymous soldier. And they commemorate the soldiers who served and fought and died in the Civil War from that county or that city. And they're anonymous. There's one in Old Town on Prince Street and Washington. And, and they're 100 years old. Mm-hmm. And they're landmarks. And, you know, people don't support taking them down. And, and, in fact, in the exit survey, in an electorate that was a plus 11 Democratic electorate, 60% said they thought that the statue should remain up. Uh, versus, but know. the ad you ran kind of caught the zeitgeist of uh, of the, the the president's position uh, on this, and then there were two other ads that you ran that were more controversial. Uh, uh, one of them uh, uh, that was uh, kind of a classic. Having used, having made ads, I uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I recognize uh, the. the uh, the style, but it was a, a pretty inflammatory ad uh, linking uh, Northam to uh, MS-13, which is a a, a, uh, uh, a gang that has uh, 
had a presence in uh, Virginia and the issue of sanctuary cities because he cast a deciding vote for a uh, a, a bill that would allow communities to become sanctuary. That would he, he cast a vote against a bill that would have banned okay. communities so, from becoming sanctuary cities. Right. But there are no sanctuary cities Correct. I always said in, in Virginia. Yeah. But the ad didn't say that. The ad implied that somehow there was a link between that vote and the 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 activities of MS13 and uh you know and and it give me I know how you feel about immigrants because yeah. as we started out off talking we were we're both the children uh of immigrants do you have did you then or do you have now any any regrets about about ha- having run that ad the the ad was about a vote that was cast on the floor of our state senate in, in the same way, by the way, the, the statues became an issue when my opponent took a position for taking them all down. That's why it became an issue. Most Virginians do not agree with that. By the way, in the Washington Post poll, 44% of African Americans in Virginia said they support taking the statues down. 40% of African Americans favor keeping them up. But on, let me go back. So yeah. my point is it was these are policy positions. My opponent cast a vote on the floor of the Senate a deciding vote against a ban. And that bill would have allowed cities or counties to not cooperate with federal immigration authorities to deport someone here illegally who commits a violent crime. MS-13 largely is here illegally, and they terrorize the immigrant community themselves. And so my point is that will not make us safer when someone who is here and, and by the way, from November to November, for the year prior to the election, there have been eight MS-13 related gang murders in Northern Virginia alone. They have nothing alone. to do with sanctuary cities, though. I didn't say that they have anything to do with sanctuary cities, but we should be able to deport them if they are arrested, was the point. And that his policy would not make us safer, would make it harder for us to crack down on MS-13. If anybody, if anybody, if any community actually... Uh, uh, Qualified as sanctuary cities and took the position that they wouldn't allow, they wouldn't turn over people who committed Correct. violent crimes. So Correct. there's several steps to go there. I mean, I just look, as I said, look, you and I, we've both been in yeah. tough campaigns. We've uh, both, I mean, I think back at the ads I've done over yeah. the years, and you know, you take, uh, you, you, you shade, you take liberties, they're defensible. Uh, on the sort of as you're defending your app, but you know what you're doing. You're inflaming people. Well, I didn't. It's not meant to inflame people. And in fact, the, the one of the things we saw was the people I was trying to to get to were suburban women uh, who had a have a legitimate concern about public safety. And and MS13 is a is a menace in Northern Virginia. If it, you'll just read the news coverage. The, and in the, fact, the, there was a fact check, David, on one of my statements. I said there were 2,000 MS-13 related, uh, gang members in, in Northern Virginia or in Fairfax County. And the Post did a fact check. They, they said there was 1,400. There's 2,000 gang members. 1,400 of them are MS-13. Well, that's more MS-13 gang members than Fairfax yeah, no, County I, police I, officers. The, 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 but the point so, isn't that. The point is you're, that— You're saying it's a tenuous link. Yes. All right. That's fine. We can have that debate and we can have that argument. We did. Now, when I asked Ralph Northam, though, Governor-elect Northam, who, by the way, let me say again, I'm, I'm, we're—, we're we're having this conversation, and I, and I appreciate this conversation. I'm not. I'm rooting for him, and uh, I hope he's a good governor for us. I think he's a good man, and I said that throughout the campaign. But 
he cast this vote. And to my mind, I would have voted uh, for that ban. And when I asked him if there were a bill that took, that were passed after a city or a county declared itself sanctuary, would he sign it in that instance? I asked him point blank in the third debate. We got to ask each other two different questions. And he wouldn't even say that he would sign it after the fact. Now, a week out from the election, in an interview with the media, he said he would sign that bill should it come to his desk. Mm-hmm. That he, he reversed himself on his position on the issue. Yeah. Because it's a, I, I still to this day believe it's a legitimate issue that when you're, someone casts a vote on the floor of the state Senate, they should be held accountable for that vote. I'm not saying that that vote caused a resurgence in MS-13. I'm saying allowing for that policy would make it harder for us to crack I, down on MS-13. I, I know what you're saying, but I, I don't know that anybody who saw that ad who had no other information would conclude that you were saying that. They would conclude that somehow what Ralph Northam did was responsible for what MS, and, and, MS-13 and, was well, doing. Well, and if that's the case, and, and, and you know, I, I tried to make it clear in the first debate when Ralph said, when, when Governor-elect Northam said, we don't have sanctuary cities, I said, that's right. And we won't if I'm governor, because I would sign that bill. You celebrated the veto of that bill. So I, mean, I didn't. I wasn't trying to pretend like that that, that was the case. But if but the ad, but the, the ad certainly was 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 very artfully drawn to leave an impression. As was the third ad that you were criticized for, which is the ad about uh, the. Uh, the the bill uh, to or the the policy of the administration to uh, uh, return voting rights to uh, to uh, felons who would serve their yeah. term and you chose uh, the example of one uh, person who got their rights back for exactly four months who had been a a a, 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 a convicted uh, pedophile pedophile. Uh, and then committed and then, another yeah. crime, and four months later, when this was fourteen years or sixteen years after the original offense, committed another crime and lost the right to to vote. Also, it was linked to the right to own guns. Yes, and uh, and, and that's the right that is of most concern. Right, is that is that, and so this person was a convicted pedophile, as you noted, and then had his rights restored after having been arrested again for having one of the largest collections of child pornography in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And my point is, was and and remains, I'm for generous restoration of rights. I don't believe we should punish someone time and time again for a crime they committed once. And if they have paid their debt to society and are living peaceably among us and, and productive members, we want to welcome them back into society. And I had said that I would have a uh, As probably the case with most of the people who, I mean, he he gave that right back to thousands of people. Yeah, 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 and and I would too. But I, but there, is there a line you draw where you would have a review? Because what Governor McAuliffe implemented and what what Lieutenant then Lieutenant Governor Northam supported and would and will continue as governor is an automatic blanket restoration of rights, regardless of circumstance. And my point is, are there circumstances where there should be a review before you put someone on a path to getting their gun rights restored? Should, a, should you treat a murderer the same as someone who got arrested for, for cocaine possession? Should you treat a convicted child molester in the review process, or, or should you have a review process for that, 
or someone who committed domestic violence with a weapon, uh, the same as someone who stole an, an iPhone. Right. And, and I think there should be a line somewhere where there's a review. And that was the point. And that is a policy difference. And, and but, the, but the, you know, the policy difference, the, the policy debate is a worthy debate. Yeah. Ads, and again, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a self-admitted media consultant, yeah. past media consultant. Yeah. I've, I've made these ads. The, the impression was that, uh, that they had, you know, that they had basically uh, uh, rearmed and reinvested uh, with uh, rights this, uh, this, this pedophile. And uh, the fact is, and, and he went out and committed more crimes. The fact is that he never voted and he didn't have, so far as I know, didn't buy a gun. He, he, got, he, was, the, he, he pled after, and so he lost his rights again. Yeah, yeah. But, but the point of but, the— But it really—Northam, it, it, you know, who's a, a pediatric neurologist, I feel af- affection for him because I have a child with uh, yeah. epilepsy, so that's an important thing. Clearly, he, he, he is not for uh, arming pedophiles or giving— No, in, no, he's not. But he is for a process that allows for sloppiness and recklessness to occur. And there were many instances, and you know, we chose one. You, you know, you pick one for an ad, and and it's it exemplifies the risk and the problem of the blanket automatic restoration of rights that he supports, as opposed to a more discretionary approach for certain kinds of felons, nonviolent felons. Frankly, I would I would support you know automatic restoration for them. But do you draw a line somewhere and say if someone is a rapist, if someone has uh, committed a violent crime with a gun. Do you have a review of their application before there's an approval of putting them on a path to having their gun rights restored? And as I said, I I, I believe and I know him to be a good man, uh, Ralph Northam, and I, I hope he's an effective governor. But that was a policy difference. And yes, it was an evocative ad to illustrate one of the, the risks of that policy. Uh, but that's to your point, the you know the nature of of campaigns. If well, I can make one other yeah, point go about ahead. it, David, because you you touched on three uh, areas: uh, the statues, MS thirteen, and, and restoration of rights. It's important for folks to know, and this is one of the things that happens with media coverage and a narrative gets set. But the fact is, I ran more ads about then Lieutenant Governor Northam missing important meetings of various panels and commissions on which he served as lieutenant governor uh, and saying that he shouldn't get promoted if he missed, you know, his attendance was so bad at at these uh, meetings. I ran more ads about that than I ran about MS-13 and Sanctuary Cities combined. I ran more ads on economic opportunity, my tax cut proposal, upward mobility, than on restoration of How rights. How about in the last I eight ran, weeks of the campaign? I ran more, well, in, in, in the last few weeks of the campaign, I ran more ads on education uh, than on statues and closing the education gap. And so, uh, you, you know, the, and, the, and yes, the, the Sanctuary Cities MS-13, I'm pretty sure, weren't running at the end of the campaign. It was restoration of rights. And the pedophile commercial. Yeah, they're all, these are all issues, you know, based on policies and votes cast by my opponent and policy positions taken. But the, the ads about his missing important votes as, or missing important meetings as lieutenant governor, the ads about my being for tax cuts and, and him being against them, the ads about my wanting to close the education gap and his, his wanting to, to change the 
nature of testing uh, as, as a response to that gap. None of those fit the narrative of the Trump narrative, which is what the media is obsessed with right now. And, and so if it doesn't fit a narrative of, to your point about Trump-like kind of issues, they don't get written about. I unveiled 21 specific detailed policy proposals in the course of my campaign, including some very innovative criminal justice reforms. Yeah, yeah. Look, I, I acknowledge all that, Ed, yeah. and I, I know the kind of campaign that you set out to run. Yeah. Uh, the fact of the matter is that you were losing, and you, and you, uh, and you torqued up your media – in a way that would uh, that would galvanize your base, which was suspicious but, of you, but not just galvanize the base. What I was well, looking all, for, well, David, I agree with you. You were going, you mentioned suburban suburban Repu- women, Republican women who probably don't like pedophiles with no, they do guns not. and and, no, and street gangs. But right, but uh, in the end of the day, um, it kind of spectacularly backfired, didn't it? Well, I don't know if that. I'll leave that for others to determine. Well, so what was Loudon the cause County, of the, you carried Loudoun County against Mark Warner in this very close way. Yeah. You lost by an ex-urban county outside of Washington D.C. You lost by twenty points. Yeah, less ex-urban than it used to be. It's much more suburban. Well, and, there you go. Yeah. Well, I, look, I also, you know, the fact is, if turnout had been normal gubernatorial election turnout. I got more votes for governor than any candidate in the history of the Commonwealth of Virginia ever, except for Ralph, Ralph Northam. Northam, right? Who got and and, who, who, and who, 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 there was an explosion. He in got three hundred thousand more than McAuliffe. I think you got a hundred thousand. A hundred thousand more. more than McAuliffe. And 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 look, there were you know we got sixty five thousand new first time voters for a for a gubernatorial race, which is pretty big. He got 250,000 first time. And, and so you can attribute that to those ads. I suspect there are other factors you know, that, that come into play. Don't get me wrong. I was the candidate. I take responsibility for the loss. There's a lot of factors, I think. Let me ask you a question. How much through. of that uh, – uh, leave your, the tactics aside yeah. that we've, 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 we've beaten to death here. <laughs> but uh, how much of a factor was Trump himself and people mo- galvanized to send a message to him? Well, I, you know, I've seen data in that regard, and I and I, I think that was a big factor. Um, uh, and I, I, again, I think this is something that that folks are going to be sifting through. I take well, responsibility for the loss. If you were running in 2018, and, how would you process the Virginia election? If you were running in one of these swing uh, congressional districts or in the in, in a state, well, I would look at you know look at the drop off with married women. As you know, a Republican candidate should carry married women at about the same percentage as as you carry men as a whole uh i think there was about a nine point differential um you know that's a that's something that is going to be a challenge if that remains uh in effect and you know the impact down ballot obviously uh you know i mean northern virginia it's like a neutron bomb went off and and you know left all the buildings standing but all the republican delegates got wiped out yes and that's true in the Richmond suburbs as well. And so, uh, you know, again, uh, I, I think there are a lot of factors. I, I would say this to your point about, you know, uh, the appeal of, of the ads and who I was targeting. The, the ads were not – what you always look for in a campaign is to get your base but also to appeal to the, to the swing voters. And the data that we had said that the concern about public safety in the, in the northern Virginia suburbs – look, the fact is – Economically, Virginia's got challenges. You may have just seen the data came out yesterday. We had four straight years now where more people moved out of Virginia than into Virginia. 
that's not the case in Northern Virginia. And it doesn't feel that way here. And, and so the economy is not a big issue in Northern Virginia in the way it is in Southwest Virginia or Southside or the Northern Neck or even Hampton Roads. The issue that looked like it was going to move voters in the suburbs of Northern Virginia was public safety and a growing concern over that. And that's where we put the focus. Now, clearly it didn't work. Did it create a backlash? I don't think so. But I don't know. And uh, I suspect no matter what ads we ran, that those votes were coming. And uh, because of Trump, if you look at the exit data by two to one, those who cast a vote based on their perception of the of the president or were sending a message, it was two to one that those who were anti President Trump came out to vote. So if the exit data is accurate, you know, that that's a factor. I, you know, I would say, too, if you look at, you know, I did pretty well in in certain areas where uh you know, in ter- certainly in turning out my turnout relative to the president. I also increased my share of the black vote between the, you mentioned the Senate race and the gubernatorial race from 10% to 12%, which was a focus of my campaign. I wish I'd gotten more. Uh, but, but the turnout was also high amongst African Americans, 20% turnout, which, you know, which uh, is high for a gubernatorial race, a little bit high, not too high. But the turnout in the, in the uh, suburbs and these 250,000 first-time gubernatorial election voters because of the off-off election year who voted in a presidential campaign, 250,000 Democrats, only 65,000 Republicans. That, to me, is a telling number. Um, I, I ask you this as someone who likes, likes you and admires you, friend, for some time. Um, back in uh, 2007, 10 years ago, you did an interview, and you said— um, um, uh, I think the uh, fact is, you know, when a majority of voters aren't with you on an issue, if you don't believe in it, you shouldn't espouse it. And I always say it's better. The best thing in politics is to run as who you are and, and the, on the things that you believe in and win. And the worst thing in politics is to run as who you're not and things uh, and on things you don't believe in and lose. Uh, so um, in 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 reflecting, I, I mean, I and you've given a spirited defense for the things that yeah. you've done. Um, are, do you have any? Do you think back and say, "Gee, I, I wish I hadn't have done this, or I wish I hadn't have done that"? I don't think I was yeah. true to myself here. I, I did not take positions that I do not believe in. You know, so on immigration, I think there's a big difference between sanctuary cities and the dreamers. I'm not for deporting the dreamers, and I made that clear. And I know we can be a welcoming commonwealth and a welcoming country, and, and I don't think that these people should be punished mm-hmm. for decisions made by their parents. Like I said, my father was bought here when mm-hmm. he was eight years old. He didn't make that decision. Of course. But at the same time, I don't think we should have sanctuary cities. That's my position. I don't believe that uh, you know it's the right use of, of local taxpayer dollars to spend the money to take down the Civil War statues all across the Commonwealth. And, and by the way, there's hundreds of them. It's not just the ones in Richmond, but there's hundreds of them. And, and I would rather they be put in historic context and that we erect new statues when, where we've been on the right side of history. Doug Wilder is the first African-American governor elected in the, in the history of the country. We should have a statue to Doug Wilder in Richmond. We should Dred Scott uh, and, and Booker T. Washington, Virginians. We should have statues to them. That's what I feel like, but I don't think that we should have the cities spend the money to take down the statues. That's what I feel. 
And on restoration of rights, I know we can be compassionate, but at the same time, discretionary. Now, are those the issues that I would have chosen to run on? As opposed to the tax cuts and, and, you know, and, and frankly, you know, even uh, the criminal justice reform innovative proposals I put forward in that regard, I, you know, that's where I'd you know, rather the race have been about. But it, what, those, those weren't what was indicating we're going to move numbers and help and you win. And has the president created an environment in which it's harder to run on those issues that you wanted to run on rather than some of these more uh, well, uh, a, a couple things. explosive I mean, one, issues? Yeah, one is uh, those issues have been, you know, they reflect a more polarized environment. I think there's no doubt about that. And... Does the president contribute to a polarized environment? I think probably. Um, and the other thing is that my bigger concern, David, is it it, it makes it harder to to have a discussion about an issue like sanctuary cities. And there is the you know the Fox effect to a certain extent. So Fox News talks about sanctuary cities, and it gets magnified there. And there's almost this reaction then to marginalize it elsewhere. And it's a legitimate concern in my view. I think we should cooperate with federal authorities and I'm pro-immigration and, and the son of an immigrant, and, uh, but I, don't, I think we should enforce the laws. But it does make it harder to have a conversation about those issues. Um, Which and, you, and I would say even, you know, on, on statues, you know, I never talked about defending heritage because that's not how I see the issue or, or view it. And I see the flag, the Confederate flag, a whole different way than these statues in the, and by the way, so do most Virginians in our city squares and, and uh, at the county courthouses. But when the president tweeted about it himself, he tweeted about heritage and that injected it into the, you know, into the, into the discussion uh, in a way I would not and never did, uh, because to me it's about, you know, are you going to spend the money on, 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 you know, bringing down these statues or put them in historical context? That's a, that's, a, that's a better conversation to have around the Commonwealth, and I think would actually be a healthy conversation to have. The conversation about historical context would probably be good for us. Uh, but that, that tweet contributed to the, you know, again, it polarized it even more in an issue that is a, a 60-30 issue even in the Washington Post, in is Virginia. it is it is it is there room for an Ed Gillespie? Uh, you know, is there room for those sort of reasonable man in this uh, in this environment? And uh, are you done with this now? Or are you done with running for public office? I'm done with running for public office. Um, Would you encourage others uh, to run for public office, knowing what you know and having gone through what you've gone through? Um, probably not. That's a sad statement coming from a guy who I know is so deeply – I mean, you've spent your life in this, demo, in this democracy. Yeah, I just – you know, I think that and, – and look, this gets to a broader discussion too, the, the, the way the media world is. Uh, there's no uh, – you know, there are no – that's not fair to say there are no um, – because the you know the nature of the way the race was covered in Northern Virginia versus the rest of the Commonwealth is very very different, and the way the look the, the national media environment and the you know they come in and they kind of pick up these 
issues in a state or in a and even locality, and nationalize them in a way where they don't have the context and they don't have the proper understanding. People outside Virginia would not understand that the that the statues that people actually care about in Virginia are the ones that are over 100 years old, generally, in their town square or at their county courthouse, not Robert E. Lee in Richmond. That's not the one they – or the, or certainly not in Charlottesville. But you're, you're saying that is – But but that's – There's no room for nuance. There, there's no room for nuance. Mm-hmm. There's no – there's and, and so everything gets cast in – and and you know there's you you got to you know pick a side and and you you know the way that people characterize you in the shorthand to get the clicks and that kind of thing what drives clicks i mean you're from the news business originally and you know it was always the case that the product was not the paper it was you and 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 the advertisers you know were selling you now we're selling clicks and it has a very debilitating and I think uh, cynical and corrosive effect on the ability to have an actual conversation about serious issues. And a lot of times the effect is just to try to shut down the conversation. And, uh, and I think that's one of the things that I can tell you right now, having run, that is one of the things that energizes that Trump electorate that I know and campaigned with. And I've, you know, one of the, and by the way, the campaign was a great experience. So don't get me wrong. I'm a better person for having done it. I'm a better person for having gone into the coal mines and spent the time with the miners. I'm a better person for having campaigned in public housing communities. I'm a better person for having gone to the Eastern shore and spent the time with the watermen. And, but I can tell you that there are a lot of people who feel like they're not just being disagreed with, but they are being disdained. And that their legitimate concerns about certain things are, you know, stifled and diminished and marginalized in a way that frustrates them. To the earlier conversation, I think you see some of that in the in the debate around Roy Moore and whether or not he wins or loses in Alabama. That will be a significant factor in the mentality there, mm-hmm. uh, because people feel like they are they are being uh, marginalized, demonized. Um, for having concerns by an elite that doesn't understand their, you know, their concerns. And that's a long president, answer. President certainly understands that, and he and he is he taps very into it. artful at tapping into. Yes, it. and 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 the media, as much as they kind of hate it, but the you know the ratings are good and the clicks are good, and it's you know there, there's a business aspect to it as well, and it's a. It is a concern to me, and that's a long answer of saying if uh, having run a lot of campaigns, myself now two statewide races as a candidate, the atmosphere is definitely different in 17 than it was in 14. There's no two ways about it. It is a much more poisonous atmosphere, and you, I don't know if there's causality or correlation. I leave that for others to determine, but I could not honestly say to someone that I like and think is a halfway decent human being, yeah, you ought to run for office. What about you? What are you, what are you going to do next? Well, I'm making up for lost time with, uh, uh, with, with, uh, my children and enjoying that. And with Kathy, uh, uh, like I said, we met on a, on a softball field. We've been married 30 years. She was an incredible surrogate on the campaign trail and, uh, we are truly blessed. And, uh, I'm blessed, and I, you know, I'd like to find a way where whatever talents I have and skills that I have, in addition to supporting my family, 
maybe can help uh, in the not-for-profit sector and uh, and and help. You know, I'd like to help people help me, but I, I don't want to, you know, do politics per se, but I'll help people who help me. We've got state Senate races in Virginia mm-hmm. in 19. We've got some congressional seats up this year that are going to be uh, tough for us, and I want to help some folks. Uh, but, you know, I, I've got an opportunity here to, you know, to really think about what is it I want to do and where do I want to try to make a difference for the country I love and the Commonwealth I love. And a lot of the relationships I've made uh, in the course of the past year, I want to maintain and continue, uh, especially in the, in the recovery community, uh, dealing with addiction and recovery Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, in, in addressing the, the achievement gap, uh, between minority students and white students that, uh, is, is way too pronounced. So you're done with politics, but you're not done with, with, with service in some form or fashion. I hope not. If there's a way, adoption and uh, and uh, foster care are areas. So, I, you know, I made a lot of great friendships and relationships, uh, and that's one of the reasons I'm a better person, even though I lost the race. Uh, you get to go places as a candidate that mm-hmm. no, nobody gets to go. I, I would not, uh, you know, I, I would not have been in these in, in these recovery communities, uh, you know, talking to people dealing with addiction in the jails. Uh, out on the port with the you know with the with the uh, pilot captains and and out you know with the oystermen uh, in on Tangier Island or in the coal mines and and so you know it, it's transformative in a lot of ways and, and eye opening and I I learned to see things from the perspective of, of different people and it changed my mind on a lot of things. So I'd you know like to keep that going somehow, but without having to be a candidate. Well, <laughs> you're going to go through a recovery of an entirely different sort, and I wish you the best of luck with that. And Ed Gillespie, thank you for being here. Thanks. Thank you for being a board member at the Institute of Politics. Thank you, David. Thanks for letting me be your 200th podcast. Yeah. Congratulations on thank that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.